This is the Ethics Lab Podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. It just isn't logical to judge people that you don't know. Um, it's like not going into the patient's room to find out what's going on. Um, and yet we persist in applying our system template to people that, for whom it's not working at all. A 2019 White House report tells us that half a million people are homeless each night in the United States. In 1992, Dr. Jim Weathers began doing street rounds in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, bringing medical care to the homeless. Since that time, the Street Medicine Institute he founded has grown to become an international organization. In 2015, CNN named Dr. Withers as one of their top 10 heroes. How might healthcare best include and serve people living without any shelter? Dr. Jim Withers, could you tell us a story of how you became involved in street medicine? Well, I'd reached a point as a medical educator. Um, I'm on the faculty at the University of Pittsburgh and also the UPMC Mercy Hospital here. And I realized that um, it was difficult for physicians in particular to engage people whose realities were very different than ours. Um, Domestic violence was an issue I became very aware of and realized how dysfunctional we were as medical providers in seeing that issue and then even knowing how to connect to the uh, the, the profound centrality of that um, as, as physicians in our patients. So I began to look and think about excluded, exclusion and excluded people and these parallel realities that patients have that we don't uh, we don't know how to connect with. Around that time, I had a patient who was homeless from the street um, in a in the winter, and I didn't know him well. And he insisted on leaving the hospital. Um, I learned later that he froze to death, and that really galvanized me to see the rough sleeping population as a potential classroom where I might learn and perhaps take my students out to immerse ourselves in the reality of an excluded population. So I made efforts in 1992 to figure out how I could um, begin to go out under the bridges and along the riverbanks of my city. How would you describe street medicine to someone else? Well, um, it was overwhelming. In order to gain access to the community, I realized that I needed a guide. Um, there's a lot of mistrust, a lot of um, resentment towards the health system out there. And so a formerly homeless man was my guide. And uh, he told me not to dress like a doctor. So I <laughs> I read a book that described how to dress like a homeless person and uh, put dirt in my hair and such and uh, met up with him. And we began to to go out into the homeless camps and abandoned buildings in, uh, in 90, 1992. 
I was pretty shocked and surprised how many people were actually sleeping under bridges and in the nooks and crannies of the city. Mike had their trust and was able to uh, introduce me to them in a way that um, they weren't threatened by me. And it was actually a real privilege to gain the trust of the people out there who were quite bitter about the health system. And many of them said they'd rather die than go to the hospital or, or engage in care. But there were a lot of very ill people. Um, and so all I could do at that point was to begin put putting medical supplies in my backpack and began to perform some sort of medicine under the bridges. Are there one or two street medicine stories that have had an impact on you? One of the first people I met, um, I consider the folks I met on the street my teachers, um, was a guy who would only allow us to call him grandpa. He was about 80 years old. And um, he had a lot of paranoid thoughts, which kept him from seeking health care. Um, but I gained his trust and uh, was faced with trying to address his medical needs, which were pretty significant. He had swollen legs with ulcers. Uh, at times, there were maggots in, in those wounds. Um, clearly, he had some cardiopulmonary issues as well. But I had to work with him on his terms because – he had uh, not been uh, able to be engaged in mental health or medical services. And in fact, others had tried to involuntarily commit him and it was always overturned and he was released. So I had to deal with the fact that if anything was going to happen, I had to do it in the context of the street. So he taught me um, to really work with, with trust and uh, with communication issues, um, and just reduce harm for the for the time being. Eventually, um, I came into the office at the hospital, and uh, I was told that there was an old man sleeping in front of the clinic. And I went out. At this point, I had my my uh, tie and white shirt, and uh, Grandpa kind of looked up at me and he said, "You really are a doctor," <laughs> and. Uh, so that was a you know a, a slow process, but I was able to engage him in our health center where, uh, with some communication with the staff, they really um, welcomed him as a really honored guest. We even had a a special um, tub that had supplies to take care of his wounds, and he would show up. Um, Grandpa, you know, taught us a lot uh, in terms of the trust building and how. That is the key to creating any kind of a plan for most of the other folks out there. Um, I have another story about him, I guess I could tell, of when uh, people began to show up at the emergency rooms. Uh, my colleagues in the emergency room were sometimes less than pleased. Um, and I remember Grandpa showing up with lice all over his body. And the nurse and I didn't know what to do. So we, th we realized there was a shower in the emergency room. So we went up there and uh, asked permission to use it. And first they were skeptical. I remember one saying to me, you're actually bringing people here uh, from the street? Uh, but as 
Grandpa got his shower, um, he began singing these old Italian songs. And some of the staff would peek in, and they got curious, and some of them were smiling. And By the time we finished cleaning him up and getting him new clothes, um, there was a, quite a crowd watching. And as he went out with his bags, uh, he stopped and looked up at the group with a big smile and said, thank you very much. I'm still cheating the undertaker, <laughs> which was his catchphrase. And some of the people in the ER actually broke out in applause. And it was it was a really move, moving moment for me to sort of see that um, someone like he, uh, Grandpa could get medical care um, and that the, some of the gaps in understanding could be crossed. I, I love, uh, again, I think of the early patients, especially um, Richie was a, was a patient that we, we found him in an abandoned loading dock um, in a part of the city where at the time there was very little going on. And uh, we saw a pile of garbage and we crawled up over it. And sure enough, there was a, a guy back there who was uh, drinking, filthy, sleeping in his own uh, feces and, and waste and um, pretty much just waiting to die. He was surprised to see us, but pleased. <laughs> we brought him some water and things. And I tried to convince him to go for medical care for his cough, but he refused. Um, but he wanted us to come back. And so we just went with what we had and uh, visited him. When we first got our nurse, she came out and obviously he was moved by a woman coming there. And yet we weren't making headway. So one night I decided that Richie probably saw himself as the garbage in which he was sleeping. So I said, you know what? We're not going to do anything tonight except clean up Richie's place. So he got a bunch of garbage bags and gloves and such. And we went down and we just scooped up all this stuff and loaded it up and took it away. And then uh, someone had a piece of carpet we put down. And a couple days later, our nurse went back and gave him a haircut, a tetanus shot. By the next week, when we visited him, um, he was less drunk and actually showed us pictures of his family. Um, later that week, he had a bottle, but it had flowers in it. And we discovered he had a wonderful singing voice. Um if the, within the end of that month, I think it was, he decided to leave. He said, Doc, I got to get out of here. And so we uh, helped him get into a, uh, a facility that catered to older homeless people. And I went to visit him later and asked him if he still had pictures of his family. He said, no, there must be back at the camp. So we drove down in the day and we crawled up over the garbage that was still there and he finally found the pictures of his family. As he was walking out, he just stopped and stared at the place he used to sleep and then looked at me and said, Doc, how could a human being live in a place like this? And at that moment, um, he was showing me that if you first approached him and you, you asked him, do you want to leave the street? Do you want to be here? He would have said, yeah. Um, but by revealing to him how we saw his value, 
Um, it was a woman that said, they loved me until I could learn to love myself. He was able to reimagine himself and embrace a different reality for himself. Um, and the same guy couldn't couldn't believe the previous person that he had been. So I think it's uh, certainly an interesting story for for one person, but it also reveals, I think, the journey that we enter on with people in their own healing and how that unjudgmental companionship, wherever they are, uh, is central to whatever we do with our medicines and our, our technology. Can you tell us about the Street Medicine Institute that you founded? Okay. The, uh, the Institute was, uh, is a nonprofit which was created in 2009 to um, consolidate and, and assist the street medicine movement, which had become a global movement at that time. Around 2005, we started having our international street medicine symposiums uh, to basically allow people practicing street medicine to get together for the first time and discuss how to perform street medicine. And we also, from the very first meeting, dedicated ourselves to our students and those the learners that were interested in adopting street medicine practice. What do you think are some of the common misunderstandings that exist in the community or among healthcare providers about street medicine? Probably one of the issues that I keep toying with my whole career is this notion that there are people that are experiencing other other realities, other um, circumstances that we don't understand because we're not intimately close to them. And yet we have a systems approach to patients and the people that don't fit in frustrate us. Um, and the natural response is to kind of label them as not cooperative um, people who um, who need to change their behaviors or their circumstances to fit our systems boxes. And when you look at the people on the street, they're dying at a rate 10 times that of the general population, about I think four times that of homeless people that are sheltered. Uh, they're, they're sleeping in the snow. They're being assaulted. Um, they're living really, really difficult lives, and yet they're also stigmatized and often looked down upon. Um, so they're kind of the modern lepers of our society. And it just isn't logical to judge people that you don't know. Um, it's like not going into the patient's room to find out what's going on. Um, and yet we persist in applying our system template to people that for whom it's not working at all. And I think that's extremely uh, foolish of us. And it's not effective. The utilization of our ERs, some are 40% homeless people, are the highest utilizers. Um, their length of stay in the hospital, their readmission rates are higher, their mortality. And uh, catastrophically, they go into the ICUs and cost us a lot of money. And just by going out and listening to them and engaging them like the old-fashioned house call, um, we believe, and we've seen some evidence, that um, by grappling with the reality of people in a way that um, they can trust you, that you can begin to untangle some of these uh, complexities of 
of their mortality and their and their difficulties. But we're very locked into a system-centered way of thinking. So I guess in a, that's a long way to say that we shouldn't judge people that we don't know. Um, and in fact, they become quite interesting the more you learn about the people out there. I had the same lessons when I began to do domestic violence work. Um, a lot of my peers were kind of avoiding or running away from the issue. And I created a consult service in our hospital in the early 90s, which really uh, helped the system as well as the patients because it's like doing geriatrics. You you get more interested and involved in, in the details of a population's needs and it becomes interesting and becomes solvable. But we're resistant to uh, to opening ourselves to uh, to learning about people um, for whom things aren't working. As you look internationally, what are some of the stories that have been learning experiences there? Well, I have been able to dedicate a lot of my uh, my personal time to travel, to uh, go to all the continents, and to uh, to meet with like-minded people who are beginning to create their own street medicine programs. That's one of the purposes of the Street Medicine Institute, uh, which is to uh, to assist anybody who's interested in doing this work to set up their programs and to look at um, how best to do that work. In the global south, we see obviously challenges that are different and much greater in some ways than we do in uh, the United States and, and Europe. But um, – I'm always taken with the similarities of the societal attitude towards people that are sleeping on the street. And I'm also very moved by the similarities of those healthcare professionals and others who decide to go out into their own streets and get to know their people. So we've really got a global movement um, of people who feel the same way about the excluded in their own communities. So it's a grassroots movement of local efforts that have now kind of been woven together globally. Um, I have particular fondness for my colleagues in India. The first program that I ever saw besides my own was in Calcutta back in 1992. Um, I was to go there <laughs> this week uh, but the uh, the COVID pandemic has put that on hold for a little while. But um, the thing that uh, also impresses me is how I guess we're still in what I'd call the heroic phase of street medicine where programs generally only start with individuals or small groups that really, really care about the people on the street. Um we're not at a point now where a street medicine program is like a fire department, where the whole city understands that it's in everybody's best interest to have one and support it financially. So you tend to find people who are uh, finding supplies as best they can, getting grants, sacrificing a lot of their personal time, volunteering. Um, so the spirit is really strong. Um, and I find that exciting, but I also feel like we should move more towards a model in which um, we recognize that the communities, the major hospitals and insurance companies, et cetera, ought to support street medicine as a legitimate part of a healthcare system. 
What kind of medicine do you find is practiced most? Is it primary care? Well, we, we've kind of broken it down into levels of development of a street medicine program because, as I mentioned, usually you start off with someone who's just able to steal some bandages and things uh, like I did um, and with limited resources. But you go out and you witness um, the suffering out there. Um, sometimes I think we had seven pregnant women last year. And I remember one time we had three dialysis patients on the streets. Um, it gets pretty overwhelming um, to see what's going on out there. And you have to, almost like a war zone, you have to say, well, where can I start to at least uh, keep as many people from dying as I can? And that's where I, I started. What happens then is a sort of a stone soup, if you're familiar with the story, uh, where people see what you're doing and they begin volunteering, offering supplies, offering to volunteer, um, collaborate, and your program builds and your capacity builds. Uh, street medicine is never adequate medical care. It's not adequate primary care for sure. But we do realize at this point that we have to try to take on some form of primary care out there because otherwise it won't get done. One of my former students called it transitional primary care. A lot of it is out of a backpack. Um, and uh, the other way that you interface with the streets is often through congregate areas and, and vans. Um, so in either the walking or the uh, f sort of location-based work, um, you do your best to assess emergencies to try to deal with them and then to try to get people prepared and into adequate primary care somewhere else. Dr. Jim, how have you found that this work has impacted you or your colleagues? Well, that's that could be a pretty deep question. <laughs> um, and maybe anyone who has a long and rewarding career shares some of the same journey. But Working with people for whom very few would um, extend themselves has added to my sense of the nobility of healthcare, <clears throat> of the privilege it is to be there for folks um, who often are hopeless and feel um, they have a worthless place in society. I think that is part and parcel to the history of our our field of healthcare, be you a doctor, nurse, or PA, or or whatever. Um, and so we always say, you know, we receive a lot more than we give. The other thing that um, has been profound for me is the classroom of the streets. I've had students for now twenty eight years who. Um, who have taught me a great deal and who's uh, we're, we're able to validate their idealism, their creativity, uh, their willingness to uh, adapt practice to the, meet the needs of people that are excluded. And many of them have gone on to start their own street medicine programs or departments. Um, and that's far beyond anything I would have hoped for. And yet the street medicine movement as an educational partnership is also probably a very close second to the actual help that we've done for people. Time marches on. What are you paying attention to now 
as opposed to when you first started this work? I think in the early days, I was uh, <laughs> I was just trying to be to have integrity. Um, I couldn't be a teacher in a urban hospital and not try to go upstream a little bit or to kind of replicate the house calls that my dad used to make when I was a kid uh, to get to know people, um, just seeing them pass through and not being able to uh, engage them as human beings was was pretty much my main desire. But as you uh, as you get into the streets and you find uh, collaborations and, and partnerships, uh, you see that a lot more is possible uh, when you sort of reinvent healthcare in solidarity with people. Um, and it's revolutionized the way I look at what healthcare really is. I think we need to weave ourselves into the fabric of our communities, listen to them, and then create solutions that are uh, that they're engaged in and that, that match their reality. Um, so I'm looking at bigger and bigger pictures um, as I get further along. That's why I started the symposiums and the helped start the institute. Right now, the um, the ability to to hold our annual international meetings will be in Toronto this fall. Uh, creates a platform where we can look at the scientific evidence that we've been able to gather and improve our practices. But probably for me, um, the idealism and the uh, reclaiming the integrity of our profession has been one of the most exciting things for me. We're beginning to try to look at um, things in uh, public health directions, not just internal medicine ways or family practice ways, um, how systems work together or don't. Um, and so there's it's, it's actually pretty open-ended how far this could, can take us. For healthcare professionals across the spectrum of disciplines who want to get involved, what would be a next step for them? I recognize that it's not just medical people that care about uh, those who are excluded. And so street medicine is just one part of a, maybe the piccolo section of a symphony of people that could be, um, could be working together. Um, I would suggest that you contact us at streetmedicine.org and we'd be happy to talk to you and uh, um, look at your, your situation and maybe link you up with people who have similar circumstances and have created models, uh, invite you to our international meeting um, and, uh, and learn from you. One of the things I keep forgetting maybe to emphasize enough is that uh, although street medicine is a medical service for people, we're trying to um, listen to the people on the street in terms of creating uh, this new fabric. So um, we, we welcome partners that are able to, uh, to do sociological work with us to, to look at the, um, the stated and unstated needs that people on the street actually experience. Because you can, even at the street level, you can come up with your own plans for people. But I always caution us to involve them in our, in our guidance and our boards and our uh, creating of our programs. Uh, to listen to the people themselves.
When you reflect on our healthcare system as a system, where do your reflections take you? That's a great question. I tend to go like I, I tend to like to go down <laughs> certain rabbit holes, and that's just my own proclivity. Um, one of the things that I'd love to talk more about is looking at the health system as the patient and saying, why do we not proactively look at the needs of people? Um, we should be worried about not just the people in the waiting room, but the people who aren't there and why. I find it um, intriguing that we don't look at ourselves in the mirror more, that we don't uh, look at, reflect on uh, why the health system is system-centered so much um, and why it doesn't really meet the needs of, of many types of people. Uh, the street homeless were always just one example of a deeper philosophy of engaging excluded people. And I think um, that begs the question, why don't we care? Why do we, why do we stay in our boxes? Um, and there's a lot of reasons. They're fascinating to me. There's everything from economics to structural rigidity to prejudice to um, – uh, profit, you know, all all the different elements that I think we ought to seriously look at. Um, and anytime discussions with my students or others go into those arenas, I find that it's um, it's an important area to get into. We often look at populations and we say we're going to try to work with that group, and we're going to try to work with this group, and so we study them, but we don't study ourselves very often. Um, we're sort of the the gorilla in the room that we don't notice. Appreciation to our guest, Dr. Jim Withers, today for his advice and reflections. As always, appreciation to our listeners as well. Thanks, everyone. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. you have enjoyed this edition of the ethics lab podcast exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics ethics lab was created by kevin murphy and russell keithline thanks for listening join us again 